Thanks very much, Chris, for coming on our show. This is a really uh, exciting program for us. I don't know why we missed it. We missed our top 10 of 2022 for biblical fines. Uh, but we're going to discuss them anyway now, even though we're about a month and a half into 2023, because we don't want to let this go to waste. So what we're going to do, if it's all right with you, I'm going to start with number 10. We're going to work our way back to number one. These are the top 10 that you, you and I put together basically for our magazine. So this order might be different to others. One of our actually top two or three isn't actually featured on most other people's top 10s for biblical archaeology, which was extremely surprising for us. But um, we're going to get to it. Thanks, thanks very much for coming on for this. It's a pleasure. So 2022 at number 10, we have a discovery that's more of a teaser than an actual discovery because it was kind of an accident. And this refers to a Ramesside era tomb that was discovered um, to close to the coast of Israel near Pelmachim, this uh, beach, quite famous beach actually that we've been to a few times. Um, this was a 3,300-year-old underground tomb that was broken into by construction workers. This amazing footage of the moment in which the IAA goes down there for the first time. They found complete vessels, bronze tools, weapons, skeletons even, arranged in a ceremonial burial. And it dates to the time period of Ramesses and totally undisturbed for 3,300 years. Amazing discovery that we don't know the significance of yet. Um, but we'll see. It makes our number 10. And it's also interesting, I think, because if you've gone to the Pamacham Beach, Palmachim Beach, as we have, the beach is strewn with artifacts. <laughs> um, so much so that sometimes you can uh, be too tempted to pick something up along that beachfront. Um, but yeah, this is an amazing discovery. It's at our number 10, and maybe I'll kick it to you for number nine. Sure. So this is Judges Era Lead Trade. So this is a shipwreck that was discovered just off the coast of Caesarea. Um, ancient shipwreck that was discovered to, be, to have been carrying a hoard of lead ingots. And this goes together with another shipwreck that was discovered, I think, just a few years ago. Um, I think a little bit further north, this other one, that was carrying tin. Mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, cargo of tin. And these two discoveries actually go quite well together, but, but in particular for our purposes uh, is this more recent discovery of these lead ingots from the shipwreck at Caesarea. So our good friend from Hebrew University, Professor Naama Yahalom Mack and Professor Yigal Erel, uh, last year presented their isotope analysis of these ingots and they were able to conclude that they had been mined in Sardinia. Mm. Now, these ingots are stamped with Cypriot markings, uh, Cypriot Minoan markings uh, of a type that was used during the Late Bronze Age. So this is a, this is a period uh, that fits with the uh, early to mid-judges period, say, in the biblical account, uh, going with the, the, the standard biblical chronology there. This fits with, with the, the earlier part of the judges period and the, the researchers, they, quote, concluded that there were vast commercial ties between the two populations uh, with the purpose of transporting raw material. So there was some kind of major trade going on at this time between the land of Israel and elsewhere, where they were mined, Sardinia, or whoever was shipping it from Sardinia. 
And this again goes together with a similar shipwreck discovery, uh, again from a few years ago, carrying tin, that an analysis of that cargo showed that it was mined in Cornwall, England, which right. is incredible. There's some kind of major seaborne trade going on at that time. And this fits really amazingly with one of the early judges' accounts in the Bible. It's found in Judges 5, the prophetess Deborah is talking about a couple of the tribes that didn't join in a war effort at the time against one of the Canaanite rulers because they were away in their ships. Mm -hmm. uh, she says of the tribe of Dan and the tribe of Asher that they were busy in their, in their breaches or in their ports. Um, and if you look at some other scriptures, like for example, Deuteronomy 33, this talks about a prophecy of the tribe of Asher dealing with bars of metal or ingots, shall we say, of metal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's a really cool connection there, verisimilitude, you could say. <laughs> Uh, between those early uh, judges period scriptures and these discoveries from the same time period. So number eight now, this is a discovery that wasn't really, didn't really come up in an excavation. Uh, it was uh, kind of revealed to the Antiquities Authority and alongside uh, Professor Shmuel Achitov. Um, this is, relates to what's known as the Ishmael Papyrus. This is a really important artifact because it's um, only one of three first temple period papyri that we have with the ancient Hebrew script on it that have been pre preserved. So it's less important, I think, for the words themselves that are written on it. Uh, we have this, this name Ishmael that's written on, on there. We have other phrases, don't send, cry after him, of no help. That's how Professor Achitu of the epigrapher um, talked of the, the, the writing on it. Um, but again, what's, what this shows is the potential for discovery of future first temple period papyri is out there. Of course, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, most of them dating to the, some to the third, second, first uh, century BCE. Um, and, you know, what about the first temple? What, what about 400 years earlier than that? We have other bits of scripture like the uh, the silver scrolls that were found here in Jerusalem, dating from the, uh, the 7th century, if I'm not mistaken, the late uh, 7th century, with scripture written on it, but that's on metal. Um, and so we haven't thought that there could be too many in the future, papyri that are found with perhaps biblical uh, scriptures on them or something like that. But this discovery shows it's possible. Ishmael, of course, is an, uh, this man's name that's on there is very famous from the biblical account. Now, Professor Achitov, when we interviewed him, he thought we were crazy to even connect the two, the Ishmael from the Jeremiah account. Ishmael put to death Gedaliel, who was the, the kind of the governor that was over the Jewish remnant after Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. This is some of the latter chapters uh, for the chronology in, in Jeremiah. Uh, Ishmael was this man that murdered uh, him, Gedaliah, and uh, took some of the, uh, took Jeremiah and the, the, the daughters of Zedekiah and the other party with him for a time. So it might not be that same individual. And yet we do have, again, this name Ishmael that's famous, of course, from uh, the account of Abraham's uh, son. But here we have during Jeremiah account, the Bible talking about an Ishmael. And we have this name in use archaeologically as well, how this, this papyri is dated based on carbon dating and then also the script itself. So the Ishmael papyrus is our number eight.
Okay, number seven, we have Hezekiah's sluice gate. So this was a bit of an interesting one last year because it, it actually got us quite a lot of traffic mm -hmm. to, because the website. We, to the website because we discovered this buried within an archaeological journal, a uh, scientific journal, fairly soon after it had been published. We unwittingly came across it and we're like, no way. Uh, we, need to, we need to look into this and maybe write something on it. So we published something about it. The original journal article didn't actually have that many views on it, but then as soon as we published it, it suddenly gained all this additional attention. A lot of people writing on the subject were citing us uh, in conjunction with them because no one else had kind of picked up on it at the time. Right. But this really fascinating study of Hezekiah's Tunnel, which for the past, what, 150 years has been studied and studied so many times, like how much more is there to learn from this tunnel? And there is more to right, learn, amazing. it turns out. So one of the uh, interesting conundrums about Hezekiah's Tunnel is how, um, how water would be accessed from the upper area near where the Gihon Spring is if you've got this tunnel here that's flushing it all the way down to the Siloam Pool in the southern part of the city um, and, and not uh, allowing the water level to rise enough to make it accessible in the pools that are closer to the Gihon Spring, so, which are quite uh, important uh, pools themselves. Right. Like, it, it, it would just make sense to make a structure as impressive as Hezekiah's tunnel was, in which you would still have water accessible on one end and the other. So, there's been this theory among these uh, researchers of perhaps a sluice gate within the tunnel, and they believe that they have found just that thing. The researchers Arya Shimron, Vitaly Gutkin, uh, Gutkin and Vladimir Uvarov, uh, in April last year, published their findings, uh, believe, uh, positing that there was a sluice gate, I think about two-thirds of the way through the tunnel, uh, where the roof, the, the ceiling rises quite a lot and enables room for this construction. So a sluice gate is like a sliding, uh, a vertically sliding gate with which you can control water levels on one side or another. And so within the specific part of the, the tunnel where the ceiling rises enough to accommodate something like this, they've been able to find several unusual things, including bolts sunken into the side of the, uh, of the tunnel walls, ancient bolts, which originally held some kind of wooden frame. There's a significant analysis of those in their publication and them positing that that was part of the original construction. Also a study of the hydraulic plaster in the tunnel as well. And it's impossible to get an exact fix for the dating mm -hmm. of, um, of the plaster and thus the sluice gate. Uh, you, people going through the tunnel will notice several water lines in uh, quite high up on the plaster, which attests to water levels having been regulated at a higher rate uh, for a long period of time. So they did analysis of this plaster. There's only so much you can determine from that, but they believe that it would fit within the time period of construction of the Hezekiah's Tunnel up to, I think it's the fourth century hmm. BCE. And then there's just the logic that if you're gonna construct this tunnel, you would construct it from the get-go 
with a sluice gate rather than go through the difficulty of trying to add one later on. So based on all of these things, uh, various things they've found, including a part in the ceiling where they believe uh, a rope would be able to be attached and to, to raise and lower the sluice gate at this certain point in the tunnel. Based on all of that, uh, they've put forward that there was originally a sluice gate in the tunnel. Uh, as amazing as Hezekiah's tunnel is, it's even more amazing, uh, not least because the sluice gate would then be the earliest known one in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and that that gate would help regulate water at both ends, adding more water to one end or, or more to another based on the situation in the city at that time, or more specifically relating to the Assyrian siege that the Bible talks about that Hezekiah was so worried about uh, at that time that spurred on the construction of Hezekiah's tunnel. So this is, again, just jumping on the back of this, just so people don't know the Hezekiah's tunnel. Um, this is something that's well documented in scripture, bringing the water to the, to the southern part of the city, southwestern part of the city as well. So this is why it's important and just the fact that discovery is still able to be made in something that people have studied for so long. It's absolutely crazy. Um, there's some disagreement with the original authors, I think, of this study as to the ex how it would have functioned exactly, but everyone like, applauds these people for finding something new at, in, 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 a, in, a, in a tunnel that all of us have been through several, several times. And if you go through Hezekiah's tunnel, Read our article or this study before you go the next time and you could find the bolts. It's a little bit of excitement. So I'm going to do number six and number five because they both were found, uh, both discoveries from the same excavation. This is one of this, uh, one of the famous excavations called the Givati excavation here in Jerusalem. It's just south of the Dungate in the northern northwestern part of the city of David. And this first number six relates to vanilla laced vessels from the time period of Jeremiah that were found there. So if you've kept track of this excavation over the past, I think three years, there seems to be something every year that comes out from the same destruction layer. Um, this of course was, this building was destroyed during Jeremiah's time, uh, right the main destruction, Babylonian period destruction of Jerusalem. They've found massive amounts of charcoal and debris. And in that debris, they found several storage vessels, quite a few of them uh, in the destruction layer. And these vessels themselves, they found residue, not just of wine, which might be kind of uh, typical, but also that the wine was laced with vanilla, that there's vanilla inside the wine that these Judeans were drinking close to the fall of Jerusalem. Now, this is important because it wasn't uh, the fact that vanilla trade was going through Jerusalem at this time, um, really did shock a lot of people, uh, shocked a lot of the scholars. And it also does relate very interestingly to a verse, a scripture and a passage in the book of Jeremiah itself, which, um, un well, not unsurprisingly, but in some ways unsurprisingly, didn't make it into the study or the press report that was released about this discovery um, but something that we dug out of the Bible, just plugging in wine, Jeremiah, and flagons and vessels, and up, up pops a passage of Scripture that talks a lot about this. This is from Jeremiah chapter 13. Uh, it says this, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every bottle or jar or vessel is filled with wine. And, and when they say unto you, do we, not, do we not know that every bottle is filled with wine? You shall say unto them, Thus says the Lord, this is from Jeremiah, should say unto them, 
Behold, I will fill the inhabitants of this land with drunkenness, and I will dash them one against another, even fathers against sons, and I'll pity nor spare nor have compassion. And then it's basically um, showing or at least comparing the fact that these vessels of wine are going to be smashed. And unfortunately, this is the way that the inhabitants of Jerusalem that would be there right at the siege, the, the final besiegement of Jerusalem under Zedekiah. Of course, a lot of people had escaped and, well, a lot of people had left already into captivity. Uh, it was going to be nicer for them, as Jeremiah says. And yet the, the people that were there right at the last would suffer the worst of the besiegement. And Jeremiah says, with God's inspiration, that they're just going to be like these broken vessels that used to hold so much wine that would be, um, that would be destroyed. And, and here we have, in this Babylonian destruction layer, here in Jerusalem, such vessels, this time smashed, um, that contained wine and also vanilla. The second discovery here, number five of our list, uh, we are calling the City of David Ivories. This is an excavation, I should have mentioned, that's being conducted by Tel Aviv University and the IAA, Professor Yuval Gadot from Tel Aviv University and Dr. Yiftach Shalev. Um, they found over 1,500 uh, fragments of finely decorated ivory. This is crazy. This is, they came from elephant tusks. And if you know anything from this, as, as Yiftach uh, told us when we interviewed him, at the time, ivory is more expensive than gold. And so they found an absolute mass of it in this excavation site. And a couple of their co-workers painstakingly got all this together, all these tiny fragments, and they were able to reconstruct different shapes and figures and patterns of ivory panels that would have adorned uh, furniture, they believe furniture inside this house. Um, so they, they deserve a lot of credit for doing that. Giftak Shalev said this, We were already aware of Jerusalem's importance and centrality in the region in the first temple period, but the new finds illustrate how important it was and place it in the same league as the capitals of Assyria and Israel. Of course, we have in the Bible King Solomon's famous throne made of ivory, uh, we also have um, reference in the book, of the book of Amos and God actually condemning um, the Israelite leaders in Samaria and also Zion, also Jerusalem at the time, for their laying on their beds of ivory. And so we have a, until this point, we hadn't really found much ivory in Jerusalem and now you find an absolute wealth of it. It really does match well with the, the biblical description uh, of, of what we should find uh, in Jerusalem uh, from this period. Okay, number four, Hezekiah's monumental inscription. So in, this is in October last year. You have archaeologist Eli Shukron and epigrapher Professor Gershon Gilil presenting the results of new RTI imaging of a stone inscription that had initially been discovered by Shukron in his excavations in the city of David uh, in 2007. So at that time... Uh, well, I'll, I'll describe the stone itself. The, the stone is a relatively small one, so when you hear about it being a monumental inscription, it might sound a little bit oxymoronic. Mm -hmm. it's, it's more or less a hand-sized stone, but you can see two lines of text going across it. Both lines are broken, but based on the text itself, the text is quite large. So you, you can tell immediately that this is from what would have been a much larger inscription, a monumental inscription, if you like. And so from the outset, it was known that the, the upper portion of the text said something like Kiao, 
and then um, there were three letters for the bottom text, resh, uh, kuf, hey. Um, so there was some speculation based on the upper part of the name that it was the name of the king Hezekiah. Now what's come out recently uh, based on these new images, reflectance, transformation imaging, um, is the identification more conclusively of a zine mm -hmm. in, uh, in that upper portion of text, which would make it absolutely Hezekiah, Hezekiah. And uh, the logical uh, conclusion for the second line is that that reads Bricha, so Hezekiah and Pool underneath. And anyone who's familiar, again, as we've briefly touched on with Hezekiah's tunnel, with the biblical account, anyone familiar with that will, will, will immediately go to 2 Kings 20, verse 20, which reads, quote, Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made the pool and the conduit, or Hezekiah's tunnel, and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And so on. So Gilil, if the epigrapher Professor Gershon Gilil, he believes that perhaps this may have been part of a larger... Uh, inscription, perhaps with the same text or much the same text as, as that verse relates, mm -hmm. um, based, on, based on these words contained within this inscription. So Gilil noted that, quote, this is the first time where a monumental Hebrew text mentions the achievements of a king akin to monumental inscriptions found elsewhere throughout the ancient world. So uh, many of our listeners will be familiar with those, the big Assyrian monuments, um, but, but really up until this point, it, the, there's been less of an idea of this being done by Israelite or Judean kings. Uh, that's more been the realm of foreign kings. So with, even as tiny as this inscription is, uh, you can quite clearly see the text written across it there and quite clearly determined that this was part of a much larger inscription, this is some exciting uh, evidence that points out that actually the Judean and Israelite kings were creating big monumental inscriptions. Now, um, these researchers, Shukran and Galil, also posited that this inscription should go together with another one that was found not too far away, uh, as part of the, the waterworks area, uh, mm -hmm. discovered in, I believe it's 1978, by Yigal Shiloh. And that inscription, again, it's partial, but there's uh, a word that clearly reads 17th in that inscription, which is a year that fits well with Hezekiah's reign and when he would have been making uh, this, the, the, these waterworks constructions. So for whatever reason, I mean, discoveries from Hezekiah's time in Jerusalem, they're coming... <laughs> Thick and fast these days, it seems. You're going to give us number three as well. Yes. Number three is continuing the theme of ivory, uh, the Lachish Comb inscription. So this discovery was made, as many of them are, years ago, uh, 2016 for this one. Uh, I think more or less within the center part of the Tel, Tel Lachish, a large Tel there. Um, and it was immediately recognized this is a comb. Most of the bristles have been broken off from it. And so it was sent for study um, to, to investigate if there are any lice or eggs uh, on this comb. And uh, the, the, the comb itself was found in a secondary context, a later context, but it's believed to have dated to the uh, Middle Bronze period, 
so around 1700 BCE. And while the researcher just last year was, was looking through this, uh, looking more closely at this comb, she realized some shallow etchings on this comb that, that, that hadn't been realized before, but when held under a certain light, you can clearly tell there's something deliberately etched on the comb. And so she kind of excitedly went to her colleague uh, and, and eventually this was uh, deciphered, this inscription here, and it, and it reads, quote, May this tusk root out the lice of the hair and the beard. <laughs> so pretty unequivocal, un unequivocal right. that. And uh, I forgot to mention this was found in Professor Yosef Garfinkel's excavation of Tel Lachish. And he mentions of this discovery, quote, this is the first sentence ever found in the Canaanite language in Israel. And this Canaanite language is uh, a Semitic language, same as or related to Hebrew, Phoenician. Back during these early periods, this very early period in time in the development of the Semitic alphabet, there's re it's really difficult to tell any real separation between these different alphabets. But nonetheless, we have a Semitic alphabet here, perhaps one of the earliest, if not the earliest, found within Israel. I believe there's other earlier examples found elsewhere, such as in Egypt. But this has sort of been touted as the earliest alphabetical in inscription found in Israel. And the dating of this comb was based uh, on the pale paleography mm -hmm. of these letters and comparing it to uh, some existing text, I believe uh, uh, an inscribed dagger found in a tomb elsewhere. Um, now, I might be wrong on this, but I think Professor Garfinkel intimated to us that this is his best discovery or best single discovery he's ever made. Mm -hmm. So he's definitely excited by this. He's been touring around America recently, talking about it and other things. So a really exciting discovery that points to the existence of this language, uh, much the same as the language that the Bible was written in, the, the Semitic Hebrew script. It points to the existence of this alphabet with which the Bible could be written right. at such an early period. And even with some of the grammar within this inscription, there's one particular uh, part of it, you can read about this on our website, uh, to do with the Lamed, the, the use of the, the L or the Lamed in this inscription that earlier experts had thought this was a mark of a late author or was only used in this way during a late period, but actually uh, this attests to it right from the get-go, being right. an established practice, and that the Bible would have used such terminology justifiably, even in its earliest texts during such an earlier period. Yeah, it's interesting. There's, there's a couple of discoveries on this list, this being one and number one that you're going to get to. I'm sure no one's going to be surprised by that. That, you know, pushes back against early authorship of the Bible based on different certain things, this being one of them. Um, but now we're seeing writing very early and writing even um, writing in, in, in the language that we expect it to be written in, uh, a Semitic language such as Hebrew. Number two refers to the excavation really as a whole that's being done in Shiloh with the Associates for Biblical Research. Um, in particular, this past season led by Dr. Scott Stripling, they discovered what they believe to be the northern gate of the, of the Tell it's quite funny, everyone's dug Shiloh for decades, 
100 years even, and nobody's found one of the gates, and yet this past season, two excavation teams could have possibly found two. Uh, but this one in the north is very important. It's, it's the gate that's most likely meant, well, it's most likely the gate mentioned in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4, which talks about the news of the ark being taken and the sons of Eli being killed, and Eli falls from somewhere. Where does he fall from? He falls from the gate, and he's an old man who's very heavy, and that's why he's, uh, he dies at that, at, that point, at that moment. And so this gate itself might have been discovered. Um, this goes along with also um, some other architectural features that date from the late Bronze Age. So it's the period in which the Ark was there, according to biblical chronology, um, they're finding there a lot of features that indicate um, uh, a certain type of sacrificial system was taking place. They found a massive bone deposit for Visa that is there uh, towards the northeastern side of the side of the tell. They also found a, a bunch of walls that seemed to match the dimensions of the tabernacle itself, which would have, we know the tabernacle was a tent, but perhaps there was foundation walls that they rested on uh, there at the northern part of the tell, which they've found also. They've also found uh, horns, wood, uh, me, uh, stone horns that would have formed part of an altar. They've also found ceramic pomegranates as well. Um, all these, that being a motif of, of, of something that was, was part of the tabernacle and even the priest garments as well. And so you're finding all of these, um, act, all this evidence of activity of a sacrificial system, including perhaps the even location of where the tabernacle was at Shiloh. So biblical archaeology, it's pretty important biblical discoveries there. This is an excavation that's ongoing. Uh, we'll certainly be talking about it, or hopefully be talking about it this year at the end. They're going to be digging in May and June. I think they've got some spots available on their team. I think if you want to excavate with them, you can go to biblearchaeology.org, I think it is, or at least search for the Shiloh excavations. It's not too hard to find. Um, but hopefully some more coming out from them in this year's excavation, just like they've had in the 2022 dig. Okay, and number one, the Mount Ebal curse tablet. So this was a big breaking news discovery uh, early last year. There was, there was a lot of reporting on this, a lot of, in many ways, uh, confusion for various reasons on this. And it's a discovery that should, we think, have made the, the top 10 for every uh, biblical archaeology list for, for top finds for last year, and really should have made the number one. Uh, mm -hmm. but we're perhaps a little biased that way, but, but I think you'll find it's justified. Now, to set the scene a little bit, Mount Ebal is a site of an altar or what, what was uh, believed to be an altar by its excavator, Professor Adam Zertol, uh, about half a century ago when he was excavating there. And um, for a lot of people familiar with biblical archaeology, uh, a debate about the historicity of the Bible has more or less raged in relation to the kings or the earliest of the kings, David and Solomon. And more and more evidence is coming out proving David and Solomon's existence. So then we start pushing further back. How far further back can we go and find evidence of the historicity of the biblical account? Now, originally, Adam Zertal didn't think so. He, he was... Uh, totally a minimalist or, or just kind of removed from, from the situation, didn't 
really believe there was uh, Joshua or, or an Israelite entrance into to Canaan. And this was a fundamental um, belief in academia and, and still is in many ways. But Adam Zertal, uh, when he did a, a mapping of the area of the West Bank that was assigned to the territory of Manasseh, he discovered this really unusual uh, site that he identified as an altar on Mount Ebal. And this is very interesting because the Bible talks about uh, Mount Ebal being the site of a curse altar, an, an altar that would set up, be set up uh, in conjunction with a ceremony of blessings on Mount Gerizim and cursings on uh, Mount Ebal. And so it fits so well with the biblical account of Joshua's coming in to the land with the Israelites and setting up this altar. And it fits with that uh, second half of the second millennium BCE mm -hmm. time period. Now there's some debate, was it 15th century, 14th century, 13th century? But nonetheless, it's, it was way earlier than anyone expected to find this kind of corroboration for of the biblical account. So he finds this, this, this what, what would typically be called a cultic site, numerous animal bones everywhere, um, and identified this as quite clearly to him uh, Joshua's altar, Joshua's altar uh, associated with the cursings on Mount Ebal described in the book of Joshua and Deuteronomy. So there's been, since that time, a lot of pushback about that, people saying, no, it isn't an altar, no, it isn't connected, uh, d despite the connections that are there, no, it, it can't be connected with the biblical account. There was one professor that quite famously said, if Zetal is right, then we all have to go back to kindergarten. Well, fast forward to uh, the present day, or mm -hmm. 2019 to be more precise. Our friends again at Associates for Biblical Research, led by Dr. Scott Stripling, they were uh, sifting material from the excavation dumps from Zertal that had been left at the site uh, in 2019. And what they found was an incredible um, tablet, a, a defixio or a, a lead curse tablet that has an inscription uh, on the outside, but also on the inside. It's like a folded lead tablet. And immediately, Dr. Stripling knew what it was. Uh, there, are, there are other examples of these things elsewhere associated again with curses. Um, and so what they did was they sent this off for scanning, a special type of scanning, forget the exact term for it now, uh, in Prague. And then a decipherment effort was led uh, by certain epigraphers, Peter, Peter Vanderveen and Gershon Gilil joined the team as well. And they announced the discovery of this and their, their translation of the text uh, early last year. And it reads, quote, cursed, 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 cursed by the God Yahu, a variant form of Yahweh. You will die cursed, cursed you will surely die, Cursed by Yahoo, cursed, cursed, cursed. So a really dramatic inscription, uh, again, fitting with the identification of this as none other than the, the curse altar or the site of curses, opposite from the site of blessings, again, Mount Gerizim across the valley. And uh, there, there are numerous things notable about this inscription. Uh, one of them is that it uses two names for God. It uses the name El 
and a variant form of Yahweh or Yahu, Yod, He, Vav, uh, together for the same God. Now, for Bible minimalists, one big theory known as the documentary hypothesis is that the Bible was kind of cobbled together by people during a later period the worshiping. Pentateuch, yeah, maybe. exactly, the Pentateuch, uh, worshiping different gods. And that they were kind of, it was kind of cobbled together by Eloists or people who believed in a god called El or Elohim, and then Yahwists, people who believed in an entirely different, unconnected god, Yahweh. This kind of um, pagan combobulation of 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 texts. Um, but as we can see from this discovery, this actually isn't the case. As early as this time period, the late Bronze, uh, end of the late Bronze Age you see this use of these terms together for the same God. And that's exactly what you see in the Bible as well, and called Yahweh Elohim, or, or a variant thereof. So that was a, a really interesting aspect to this discovery. Um, again, the tablet illustrates that curse ceremony that took place at the site. This is recorded in the books of Deuteronomy and Joshua. This here is from uh, quoting those texts. Uh, and it shall come to pass when the Lord thy God shall bring you into the land, whether you go to possess it, that you shall set the blessing upon Mount Gerizim and the curse upon Mount Ebal. Then Joshua built an altar unto the Lord, the God of Israel, in Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. So an absolutely dramatic discovery from this early of a time period uh, back into the second millennium BCE from the late Bronze Age. Incredible discovery that fits and justifies what Zertel was saying mm -hmm. half a century ago and was being belittled for quite a lot uh, at that time. So one of the issues that has come up since with this discovery, there's been a lot of pushback, is because it was released to uh, the public, released to the press before the scholarly article came out. Now, there's actually a lot of backstory to this that a lot of people didn't realize or a lot of people posting sort of even condemnations about this didn't realize. Um, we, had some, uh, we had some conversations with Stripling and his team and were aware of this discovery coming down the pipeline. And the plan was, I believe, for it to have been published in a, in a peer-reviewed journal toward the end of the summer that year. So that was the plan. That was always originally the plan. But due to certain circumstances that came up, um, there, there was a last minute decision that we heard about. Last minute, hey, this thing is going to be released right away, FYI, so you're in the know about it. And, and there, there are various reasons for unforeseen reasons that that came up. But the initial plan always was to have this come out uh, in a peer reviewed article. And unfortunately, things came out a little bit differently in the end, but that shouldn't really take away from this discovery. And for those people who still may be doubting the, the interpretation of the inscription, let's just wait till the, right. um, till the full publication comes out and you can draw your conclusions. Yeah, even if it's, even if it's, it would, it still should be number one, even if the, the actual writing is totally wrong. It's a curse tablet. Everyone knows it's a curse tablet and it's found on the mountain of curse and it's found in the trash of the altar that was there. So take the inscription part of it to the side, if you're going to disagree with that. It should still 
make your number one for this year because it corroborates Zertal and the Bible about you know, an altar being constructed here on the site. So anyway, it does. I think people can be uh, excited for the future of biblical archaeology. It's not slowing down. Uh, we just talked this previous week with Ziv Orenstein about the Siloam Pool excavation that's gonna, that has already begun. We, of course, however, have our excavation that's going to be taking place in the summer as well on the Ophel. One thing we didn't mention is the, the discovery of a silver a half shekel coin that was found in destruction layer from the third year of the Jewish revolt. Uh, amazing discovery coming out uh, from Jerusalem as well. And the material from our dig is still being sifted right now. So who knows what might be coming down the pipe in the future with discoveries for that and with this extra excavation coming this summer. Well, thank you very much, Chris, for taking your time with us and, and just bringing to light what a great year 2022 was for biblical archaeology. Not a problem. We look forward to next year. Yes, we certainly do, which is this year. This year, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and we are going to get it right this year. We're going to get our top 10 uh, hopefully in De uh, December 31st or something like that so we don't lose track. But thank you very much for being with us. Pleasure. And for everybody else that's uh, watching, thanks for staying with us till the end of the program. Please do follow us uh, on different social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, or there. You can also get our magazine. This is a free 32 to 40 page uh, bi-monthly magazine that comes out uh, on biblical archaeology. A lot of the stories that we cover today are featured throughout the past year's material uh, inside that magazine. If you want a copy of that magazine, simply go to armstronginstitute.org and you can request your subscription uh, there for the magazine. I would also like to um, uh, get you to sign up for our daily email that comes out. You can find the location on the website there as well to sign up for our email, which will alert you when there's any new content on the website. And if you'd like to send us some feedback as well or some ideas of what you would like covered on the podcast, Let the Stone Speak, you simply write an email to letters at armstronginstitute.org and we'll respond to you as quickly as we can. Thank you for staying with us and me and Chris will perhaps see you next week. <laughs>